Hey guys, welcome back into the woodshed where we tell the truth even when it hurts. Now, today we've got a good show going for you. Today we're going to start out on our front pew. We're going to have our number one issue. We're going to talk about the gospel-centered movement and what is the problem there. What 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 issue is uh, becoming very obvious in that movement. Then in the uh, middle section of the show, what I like to call the sleeping deacon portion, we want to talk about our pulpit politicians, and then we're going to wrap it up with our back row Baptist section. We're going to talk about the death of hero culture. So uh, we're glad to have you with us, and stay tuned. We're going to have a lot of fun. All right, guys, starting off on the front pew, what we've got is the issue of the gospel-centered movement. Now, on the surface, everything here sounds great. Those are all words that we like. We like gospel. We like it being centered upon the gospel. And we, of course, like movements. And so uh, that all seems like a good word stacked together. But when you really get behind what, uh, what drives this culture, it really is problematic. It's got some huge problems that we've seen now, uh, the fruit off of that tree, and we see exactly what it produces. And uh, and so what this movement is, is this is uh, popular among a lot of your big box church growth specialist kind of things, the move in and we put up a flashy sign with a cool logo on it. We we get some nice, good music going, some mood music, and and that appeals to the people that kind of goes along with the world culture of music that we see around us, that we hear on the television, we listen to on the radio, that's popular around the world, around us, and the culture around us. And so we just integrate that into the church. And then once we have the people there, then man, we are just, quote unquote, centered upon the gospel. It's gospel only. And so everything is gospel-centered. That's kind of a tag phrase that that gets thrown on to everything. So we have gospel-centered church growth. We have gospel-centered small groups. We have gospel-centered worship. We have gospel-centered sermons. We have gospel-centered discipleship. Everything has this term of gospel-centered. Now, the problem is, is how they define gospel. And that's a problem with, with all of our church culture. We have this huge problem throughout our church culture of how we define gospel. Because very often what we will term gospel is just simply the salvation story or the, the uh, doctrine of salvation alone is what sometimes we'll call the gospel. But gospel simply means good news. Well, the good news starts in Genesis chapter 1. It ends at the end of the book of Revelation. It's all good news because it's all God's words. So the gospel-centered movement, a lot of times what will happen is these churches and these pastors, because it usually is more pastor-driven model that takes on this gospel-centeredness, um, what they will do is they will stress some portions of Scripture and then never talk about the other portions of Scripture whatsoever. So it's big on salvation. It's big on grace. It's big on uh, um, you know the blood of Christ. It's, it's big upon the cross. And that's where they leave it because they deem those portions of Scripture to have a greater value than any other Scripture. Now, friends, I have to tell you, I don't believe that God ever spoke a word that was misspoken or that was any less valuable or less precious than any other word that he ever spoke. 
And so in that, the creation narrative is just important. It's just as important, and it's just as gospel as the four gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That revelation is just as important as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That all of the epistles and, and the book of Acts, that they're all just as important, that they all preach Christ just the same as the four gospels. That even the book of Lamentations, the book of uh, the Song of Solomon, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, the book of Joshua, uh, Nahum, uh, all of these books are all God-breathed, God-inspired, and they all contain the good news. They all are good news because they are all words spoken by God. So what portion of Scripture is more important than any other portion of Scripture? What topic of Scripture is more important than any other topic? There are none. They are all equal because they are all the Word of God. And so if God only wanted us to concentrate on this one little snip, you know, uh, snid bit, this one little uh, snippet of it, well, then that's all he would have given us. That's all he would have told us to concentrate upon. Now, what happens with these gospel-centered, because here what they're really saying is that they're salvation-centered, and of course, nobody is anti-salvation. Nobody is anti-preaching um, you know, the gospel to the lost. Nobody is that. No church is preaching that. So here, it's kind of creating a straw man and arguing against it. And what happens in these gospel-centered movements and these big box churches that adopt this, uh, you know, this catchphrase, uh, what happens is they become what we would call theological minimalists. Now, theological minimalism is uh, something to where theology itself is put on the back burner. And so instead of focusing on a knowledge of God, a study of God, instead it just becomes a uh, effort just to try to get people in the door, get them saved, teach them as little as possible, just to try to keep them saved. But don't make them theologians. Don't make them people who are knowledgeable about the things of God. And what this can kind of do is move people from being spiritually minded into just being spooky. And there's a lot of Christians today who are just kind of spooky in their understanding of God. And so they, they dream up things, they, they have visions, they have uh, you know, their own interpretation of dreams, they, they read themselves into the text of Scripture. Instead of seeing what Scripture says and, and applying that to their lives, they kind of invent their own mini-religion within it. And it's very common to see among these quote-unquote gospel-centered churches and this gospel-centered movement is to where there's not a rich uh, church history that's taught. There's not an understanding of historical Christian uh, theology or theologians or Christian heroes. It's all about you in today. And so it's about you and your experience and your thoughts and your feelings. And, uh, and so it stresses the importance of self over the understanding of where we've come from, where we are, and then where we're going as well. So uh, lack of a worldview, you know, a biblical worldview, it much more centers upon uh, the secular worldview. And they pull off of that lived experience as if that somehow has any bearing or any weight upon what God says for his people.
So it's a theological minimalism. It's a teaching of salvation only. And you'll see this uh, very often. They almost have a guttural reaction to terms like religion. And they'll say phrases like, well, I don't have a religion. I have a relationship. But a religion simply means a piety in practice. Religion is how we live out what we know about our God, how we put into practice the things that we say we believe. And so it's impossible for the Christian to not have a religion. It's impossible for the believer in the Bible to not put those things into practice. That is absolutely divorced from reality whatsoever. That's never been taught that you somehow can separate your knowledge of God from your putting in practice of God. In fact, the very first commandment that we're given in the Ten Commandments says that there are no other gods before him. So there's a knowledge, a reverence for the, for the divine. But then the very second commandment says no graven images. It's all about our practice or our religion, our worship of God, our putting our practices, our piety into practice. So it's right there. I mean, it's on the forefront that you, you know, the idea that you can somehow know something and that that something that you know doesn't influence what you do is so foreign from Scripture. We see that in James where he talks about, um, you know, faith and works and he argues that out in James chapter 2 and going on into chapter 3 continues with that argument that you can't divorce these two, that, re, that a, a understanding of God or a salvation must include the works of that salvation. It must produce fruitfulness. And so you can't say, I have a relationship with God, but not a religion of God. I'm going to teach people to be saved, you know, to have salvation, but not how to be saved. These are very, very foreign, odd, weird things that play in. It's kind of all in that big basket of this gospel-centered movement. What it really boils down to is it's really about just getting people and getting them in the door, getting them to sit in the in the in the pew or in the chair, uh, get them to put a few dollars in the plate as it passes, and then just being dumb on purpose. You know, just not teaching any theology, not being rich. Um, you know, a more experiential. Uh, you know, a relationship or attitude towards God rather than a true, I'm going to believe this and I'm going to live this thing out relationship with God. And so we see that a shallow faith fades fast. That's why a lot of times these gospel-centered movements and gospel-centered churches, they very much will blow up. They'll have huge attendances. They'll need bigger facilities. It'll always be a one-upmanship. How big can we get the band? How awesome can we make it? How many lights? How many lasers? How much of the stage show uh, can we put on? How big of a production? How many groups can we form? How many helpers can we have in the parking lot? And, And it's very much a get them in, get them to work, get them doing something so that they don't realize that we're not teaching them anything, that we're not actually growing them, that they're not actually becoming a healthy member of the body of Christ with an understanding of our Christian history, an understanding of our biblical foundation. And instead, it's just an experiential uh, you know, uh, an entertainment almost based experience with the Word of God. The preacher performs, 
There's some nice sermons. And then we quickly move along. And we even see Christ give us the example of the parable of the sower, warning us that shallow faith fades fast, that that things can spring up, that uh, it can be on the road, it can be in the rocks, it can be on the thorns. But what we really should be looking for is that good ground where they get planted in, where they can grow in their faithfulness towards God, which does include an understanding and a practicing of what God teaches so that then we can become fruitful and abundantly fruitful. All right, so that's the problem with the gospel-centered movement. That's why we should be very cautionary. There can be good churches who use that phrasing or that phraseology uh, that kind of have those stickers and those bumper stickers uh, that kind of advertise their church as gospel-centered. And the pastor will often talk about being gospel-centered or mission-driven or things such as that. Those are all just good catchphrases. That's all it is, good slogans. In the end of it, either they're teaching you or they're not. Either you're understanding the fullness of Scripture or you're not. And so if it's about salvation only, then you're going to have a lot of fruitless people. You're going to have a lot of people who fade out. That may be a good birthing center for new Christians, for people to get saved, but it's not going to be a good place for people to continue to be and be saved. They're not going to grow in Christ. So that's our problem with the gospel-centered movement. Now moving along to our sleep and deacon portion of the podcast, uh, we want to talk about pulpit politicians. So what's the big problem with politics in the pulpit? Uh, That's really come to the forefront here as we've seen a lot of political issues that have come up that the church has needed to address or that has been brought to the pulpit. Um, And then as as, uh, preachers begun to preach upon these topics and begin to expound or say what God has to say about these, then a lot of people have pushed back and said, oh, now preacher, you know, you shouldn't be preaching politics. Now, what does that even mean to preach politics? Now, used to, you know, our political system was pretty much based off of a Judeo-Christian ethic. And the America that we mostly all grew up in was surrounded by and taught or based upon a Judeo-Christian ethic. And so the school book, the schoolroom, the uh, even uh, Washington, D.C. itself, the very halls of Congress, was shrouded by uh, biblical phrases and biblical uh, um, scripture references, even opened in a prayer. The sessions of Congress would open with prayer. There were uh, very much an understanding of a Judeo-Christian worldview, even if most people didn't hold it, they at least saluted towards it. They at least pandered towards it. Well, in the world we live in to now, uh, the world that we live in now, that's not the case. In fact, the halls of Congress, the even your governor's mansion, uh, even down to your even your local church, very often does not hold a biblical worldview, and very often doesn't even give a nod to it. So. As these issues have come up, which are worldview issues, which are God-level issues, and the government has begun to push into that arena, well then, as the government pushes into the arena of the church, the church has no other recourse than to push back. And so as the church has begun to push back upon it, people have said, oh, well, you're preaching politics. Well, no, what's happening is that the government is starting to mandate 
religion. And the government will always mandate religion. So that's not the question of if the government is somehow trying to enforce a religion upon people, is that that's what governments always do. Every piece of legislation is formed off of a worldview with an agenda, with a purpose, with a morality. The question is, what morality is going to be used when these things are drafted, when this legislation is crafted from what worldview, from what morality, is it going to be crafted? For a long time, it was Judeo-Christian principles. Today, it's absolutely not. Today, it is secular, even pagan at its roots, sometimes devilish and demonic. It is very anti-God. And so when the, when the country around us begins to push into the worldview, begins to push against the church, it's time for the church to push back. And so we don't teach or we shouldn't preach just purely from a party platform, from a Democrat or a Republican platform, and just go down and say, well, you know, just go in and pull the pull the Democrat lever, just go in and pull the Republican lever. Um, you know, yeah, we shouldn't get into that. Or even a parsing of, of um, you know, who to vote for in primaries or things like that. You know, the church shouldn't become overtly a political vessel. But what I would say is that the church cannot help but to engage in pulpits, uh, in politics from the pulpit. You can't separate it. Because the issue of when life begins is a religious is a religious discussion. And so it's not something that we act as if, you know, it has no bearing upon us that we shouldn't speak to the issue of abortion. The issue of abortion is spoken to because of our biblical worldview that says that life begins at conception, that life is valuable, not because of the value that we place upon it or because the parents place upon it, but because of the value that God places upon it. And so in that, that leads us to protect life, to cherish life, to be pro-life, if you bear that term. And so it leads us into that, not because it fits with our political platform, but because that's what our worldview demands. And then we can look at the two parties and we can say, okay, well, which one most aligns with my biblical understanding, with my faith, with my religion, with what God calls me to value, what God calls me to uphold, what God calls me to call good, and what God calls me to call evil. And so we can look at those two, and between the two, today, in the America in which we currently live, that is very obvious who we should be voting for, what what party we should be sending to represent us. So it really is, most of the time, choosing the lesser of the two evils, but that's it. We should always be choosing the lesser of the two evils. We should always be choosing the one that is most in line with our faith. Now, not perfectly in line. There's a lot of problems in both in both parties and both camps. There's a lot of part. There's a lot of problems, but it's very obvious that one is much more problematic at the very root core issues of defining the world around us. One of them is wholly perverted, and the other one's just got a bunch of perverts in it. So that should be very easy for us. So in that, sermons should 
contain politics because politics is starting to contain sermons. Politics is starting to deal with issues of worldview and issues of morality. And so we should address those issues. So when a, when a preacher tells me, says, well, you know, I don't preach politics, what that automatically means to me is that his sermons don't have any teeth and they don't have any feet. That he's not addressing sin, he's not addressing righteousness, he's not addressing repentance, that he's not preaching a biblical worldview, and that his sermons are simply entertainment that is unoffensive and carries no weight outside of the church doors. The people walk out entertained or at you know most of the time probably bored because he's not saying anything that's relevant to the world that's around him. He's not addressing the sin of the day. And he's just probably giving theological pep talks or or just you know probably a gospel-centered, you know, type you know, sermon in his own mind or own imagination. But he's failing to actually give the people what they need to understand to fight the evil of the day. So absolutely our sermons should address political issues, but probably without addressing political parties or politicians themselves. And people will push back and they'll say, but you know, Brother Jonathan, what about the separation between church and state? And that's a good thing, man. That is a good argument. And we do believe that there should be a separation between church and state. That originally was, uh, that phrase is not in the Constitution. It's not in the Declaration. It's not in any of our founding documents. It actually is contained in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptists. So it's him addressing a religious group. And the religious group was worried about the founding of a national church or the endorsement of a national religion, which would have been a a Christian denomination at the time, not really endorsing a religion because America was a Christian nation founded upon Christian principles by Christians, had a tremendous uh, faith that it was built upon. And this idea of freedom of religion came because most of the people immigrating at the initial founding of America Most of those people had immigrated from England, and England contained the Church of England, which was a government-run church where people were more or less manipulated by the government church. Now, the Church of England was set up because Henry VIII wanted a divorce, and the Catholic Church had to grant or um, or go along with divorces and marriages, and uh, and the Catholic Church refused to, and Henry VIII said, well, I'll just create my own church and appoint my own bishops and, and uh, my own uh, clergy, and then they'll grant me one. And so that's what he did, and it became an arm of the government. The Church of England was an arm of the government that it, yield, that it used against its people to control them and to manipulate them to get them to do what they wanted them to do. And so there were a lot of people who were dissenters who did not agree with the Church of England and its practices because it was corrupt from its very beginning. It was started for an immoral purpose. And so they dissented from the things that they were being told to do because they knew that it was man-made and it wasn't God-ordained. And so they dissented and they wanted a pure religion. That's why we called them Puritans. And these Puritans, they sought religious freedom. 
that they wouldn't have to attend government church, wouldn't have to pay tithes to the government church to support it. And uh, more or less, it was just taxation. It wasn't donations or tithes or offerings. It was more or less just another form of taxation because the government ran the church. And, uh, and so they dissented. They wanted pure religion, so they hopped a boat, went across the ocean, and were settled in a foreign wilderness where at least they were separated from the king and that oppression. Well, when they got here, they started to set up towns and settlements and things, and over the course of time, the center for these very moral religious people, the center of, that, uh, of their city was the church. And so very often, these settlements, the church was the town center. It was also very often like the city hall. And to become, to move into that area would be to be a member of that church. Now, it's not like today where we've got, you know, churches on every corner of most of our streets, you know, here in the South, of most of our cities in the South, uh, that they, we are just overrun with churches. There's a plethora for every person. In that early stage, the church was often the church, the church at Plymouth, the church at Boston, that they would be the city church. They would be one. And so to belong to Boston, to be a, a person who was a citizen of Boston, you had to attend the church of Boston. You would be required to pay tithes to the church of Boston. Uh, if you committed a sin, including heresy or blasphemy, then you could be arrested and put into state prison because of your violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Now, not one that's on the second tablet that contained the morals, you know, lying, adultery, murder, theft, things like that. But that first tablet, breaking the Sabbath, using the Lord's name in vain, uh, creating a graven image, even uh, having a, another religion were all considered to be uh, jail time offenses. Even failing to attend church, you could go to prison for it. Failing to tithe to church, you could go to prison for it. And so what they did is they kind of, they separated from, they were separatists, they separated from the Church of England because of their dissent, they were dissenters, because of their wanting to be a pure religion, they were Puritans. And so then they sailed over to America and they set up their own churches that they thought were right and pure and good uh, to enforce good, you know, to execute good upon the people, reward good and to punish evil, Romans chapter 13. And, and so they carried out all of those things. But what happened was over the course of time, they more or less became what they were running away from. And so that's where we meet this fellow named Roger Williams. Roger Williams comes over to America in his late 20s. He gets here. Um, he was born and raised in the Church of England, but he married a, a, the daughter of a Puritan preacher. And as he arrives in America, he's offered to be one of the, uh, one of the pastors of the Church of Boston upon seeing how controlling, how governmental the Church of Boston was. He said, man, this is exactly what we were trying to get away from in England. We've come over here and we're just as bad as they are. You know, instead of having one tyrant, we've come over here and we've set up dozens and dozens of tyrants where each city is policing or forcing people to have uh, a religion upon them. And so he descended away from that. He had a big struggle with the Church of Boston, uh, went to Plymouth to pastor for a little while, then came back to Boston, ultimately uh, went about 50 miles north and started a uh, another place, another uh, civilization that he called Providence Plantation. 
And it was meant to have this freedom of religion lifestyle to where not a freedom from religion, but to where all religions were tolerated, all Christian denominations were tolerated. There wasn't one central church, but rather that people could have their individual churches living amongst each other. And it became a haven for uh, Quakers. It became a haven for uh, even Jews in America. A lot of them moved into this area. Later, it would apply for statehood, and it would be uh, given the state name of Rhode Island. And so Roger Williams, along with John Clark, founded the First Baptist Church of America in Rhode Island. And uh, and so it was all about this idea of a separation of church and state. And so even when Thomas Jefferson writes to the Danbury Baptist and tells them that there should be this wall of separation between church and state, he's actually quoting Roger Williams, a Baptist pastor. So in giving... Um, in giving a sense of security to the Danbury Baptists, he quotes a Baptist preacher, Roger Williams, who said, Roger Williams, quote, a hedge or wall of separation between the garden of God and the wilderness of the world. And Thomas Jefferson kind of paraphrases Roger Williams in the letter to the Danbury Baptist to tell him, hey, you don't have to worry about we're not going to have state-sponsored or state-mandated religion. And so we're not going to make it where everybody has to attend one particular denomination of a church. Everybody is forced to go, you know, to tithe and to go to church or else for, uh, face imprisonment or things like that. And so in that, our belief is still the same that, you know, we shouldn't enforce religion upon people, that they should be able to live a free life. But in that, they're going to live a life according to a code of, of conduct, according to a set morality. And what that set morality is, is what's currently being debated. That's currently the, the war that's going on in the halls of Congress is not if, but whose. Not if there's a moral code, but whose moral code is going to be the standard that we're going to use to define everything in our world by. Either it's going to be God's or it's going to be man's. And if it's man's, it's going to be, it's going to be fallible. It's going to be wrong a lot of the time. Or it can be God's who is perfect, who is just, who is righteous. And we can continue to use the good standard, which is God's standard, we have to make up our own standard, and it's always going to be up for private interpretation. So should the American pulpit, should the church preach politics? Absolutely. Absolutely we should. If we're not, I'm really not sure what we're preaching. If we're not preaching a worldview, if we're not preaching a morality and a standard, then what are we preaching? What are our sermons about? I mean, is it just TED Talks? Is it just inspiration? Now, there should be a balance. We shouldn't go overboard like our Greg Locks or things like that where, man, it really is just a pep rally, a political pep rally every time. But, uh, you know, that's an extreme and that's ridiculous and nobody takes him seriously anyways. He's disqualified from the ministry, shouldn't be in the pulpit. Anybody that attends that church, probably not the strongest Christian, if a Christian at all. Um, so not going to that extreme. But we also don't have to be a sissy, limp-wristed, shallow, uh, TED Talk, emotional, you know, kind of pull and tug kind of guy. Um, it really should be somewhere where you come in and the evils of the day are addressed so that you know how to live for God in this lost and fallen world in which he's placed us. So politics should be in the pulpit, 
because the, po the po politicians are trying to preach and trying to establish a moral code. So there is our sleeping deacon portion. Uh, now moving on, we're going to move on into our very last topic, what I like to call the back row Baptist portion. What I'd like to talk about is superhero movies. Now, it's not just superhero movies that I want to talk about. What it really is, is a death to what I call hero culture. So I was raised in the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, even the early 2000s were kind of that early years shaping, uh, you know, a lot of uh, cultural understanding. And during that time, there was a lot of heroes. There were a lot of hero movies that were coming out from Commando and Predator. You know, you had your Rocky uh, and, and uh, Rambo and these kind of movies and, and even Westerns that would come out. We went through the Jackie Chan Kung Fu movie era and... It, even saw uh, movies like Gladiator or Patriot or uh, Braveheart come to the forefront. And what it showed was just dudes, just guys that were just manly and they were masculine and, and they were for good and here was evil and it's good guy fighting evil and good guy triumphs over evil with just his bravado, with just his masculineness, his toughness, um, you know, with his raw skill or raw ability. It was very much good guy with a gun or good guy with his fists, good guy with a sword who is uh, going to slay the dragon, kill the bad guy, going to free the oppressed. You know, it was that the the normal guy could be a hero. That's almost completely absent from today's culture. What we see in today's culture is that with the Marvel Universe movies, with the DC movies, all of these coming in, everything is this fantastic um, you know, kind of telling of this otherworldlyism, and everybody who's a hero was born with a special ability. So it wasn't that just every guy had it within him to be something special. It truly has become to where you have to be born special or there's no hope for you. I mean, who is the good guy with the gun? Who are the, the kids being able to look at and being able to, to kind of look up to and find that inspiration that, hey, I can stand up. Hey, I can do it. I can move forward with it. We've even seen a re-editing of our history and our historical figures to where now a lot of our founding fathers, they're being taught that those weren't good dudes. Yeah, they had flaws, but I, I have, uh, have bad news for you, bucko. You've got flaws too. There's no, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no, none perfect except for Christ himself. Everybody's going to have flaws. And, and in our generation, we may see ourselves as moral, but man, you fast forward 100 or 200 years from now, and what we believe and what we see as, you know, the progress that we've made in society during our lifetime, they're going to find a lot of evils in it in the future. And so for us to look back upon these, these founding fathers, these heroes, you know, from our George Washingtons, our Thomas Jeffersons, our Ben Franklins, our Hamiltons, all of these guys, and to look at them because they participated in the sins of that day and not be able to see the heroism that they came with and, and uh, be able to honor that. Even looking back and we see like Christopher Columbus has been attacked for, uh, you know, for a generations now uh, that we're trying to find fault with Christopher Columbus and some of his writings and things like that. Basically, it's digging up old tweets, you know, basically, you know, finding his old writings and trying to retroactively cancel him. And uh, Christopher Columbus was extremely brave, did something that 
people today would never do, was able to accomplish things that people today would, would, would never even dare to dream about doing. And yet we have the gall to try to cancel him over some imperfections, over some statements that were made, which were perfectly, totally acceptable in the day and age that they were made. And today we sit on our couches with our thumbs and we talk about how terrible he was. Meanwhile, he's on a ship sailing the ocean. And by the way, finding some indigenous people groups that were not saints themselves either. A lot of times what he's writing about, the words that he's using and the people he's describing, man, they're rough people. They're rough cultures. You know, we, we have an idealistic thing of that these uh, primitive cultures are good in their very nature. And man, that's simply not true. We still see today great atrocities that are committed by uh, these uh, remote tribes and things like that. In fact, uh, today we get so worked up about, um, uh, about slavery, which is an evil. But today in the world in which we live right now, there's more slaves today than there ever has been before in the past. So slavery is more prevalent today than it's ever been. Slavery in China, most of the stuff you're wearing right now was probably made by slaves. If you're listening on your iPhone, it was made by slaves. If you're wearing a pair of Nikes, they were sewed by slaves. And we benefit off of low-priced goods because of slavery. India has slavery. Africa has slavery. The Middle East is full of slavery. Even in America today with the sex trafficking and everything. Man, that's slavery. When we see the border crossings and the coyotes and all that, that is slavery. That's what they're doing, man. And so we get so worked up about guys years ago who are fighting against slavery, who fought to end slavery and were doing and what they could to end it in their day. And yet it's happening all around us and we can't speak out against it today because we're too busy talking about it 200 and 400 years ago. That's a blindness. That's what it is. It's an ignorance and a blindness is all it is. And so with that, we should appreciate our heroes in the past, but we should realize that our heroes are not just in the past. That right now, today, there are heroes walking among us. And in the future, there are going to be heroes who walk among us. And we should honor their good and we should understand their flaws and not treat them as perfect. But at the same time, we shouldn't persecute them because they happen to be human and they happen to be flawed. And so appreciate the past, appreciate the current ones. And at the same time, guys, let's not get so caught up and so wrapped up in superhero culture that we forget that there's still good guys who are warring and fighting with ideas. There are good guys who are warring and fighting with weapons. There are good guys who are fighting evil still today. And we should reward them. We should champion them. We should hold them up as prizes among us. And we should uh, appreciate the sacrifice that it takes to be a hero. We should encourage that in our sons and our daughters, that they too can grow up and be a hero without a cape, without a special mutation, without a birthright uh, superpower, that here they can be a hero with their own hands and with their own minds. 
All right, guys. Well, that's going to wrap us up for today. I appreciate you being uh, stay tuned with us. Please do like and leave a review of the podcast, uh, uh, whatever player that you're listening to, whether it be Amazon, Google, Spotify, Apple uh, Podcast. Uh, share it with a friend, a neighbor. Let's spread this thing. Let's get everybody to where they can hear the truth, even when it hurts. Thank you. This has been Brother Jonathan. Thank you for hanging out with me for another episode of The Woodshed.